Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, welcome to uh, Hudson Institute's Center for American Sea Powers conference this month. Uh, I'm Seth Cropsey. I'm director of the Center for American Sea Power. Um, and it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, have our guest today, uh, Rear Admiral Chris Perry, um, who has spoken at Hudson in the past and um, I hope will in the future many times and is a good friend. Um, Admiral Perry spent 36 years as an aviator in the Royal Navy. Um, he commanded the destroyer HMS Gloucester, uh, the amphibious ship HMS Fearless, um, and also the UK's amphibious task group and maritime warfare center. Admiral Perry uh, is a strategic thinker, um, a distinguished strategic thinker. Uh, he was responsible for uh, conceptual development um, of all three of the UK's armed forces um, looking out to the year 2030. Um, these days he is uh, running his own strategic forecasting company, uh, advising governments, companies, banks on risk um, and leadership. He's also a commentator in the UK media and notably, and for all the right reasons, a best-selling author. Um, his most recent works, based on experience, personal direct experience, include Down South, a Falklands War Diary, and, uh, and Superhighway, Sea Power in the 21st Century, which I um, strongly recommend. Uh, so I'm going to go over here and tie on one of these mics, and then we'll talk. Thanks for coming. Pleasure. Um, We, um, our public education system has many strengths, and uh, geography is not one of them. He, he said geography is not one of the strengths of your education well, we'll system. Have to, we'll, we'll have to, uh, is, it, is, that, is that any better? Yes. Okay. So I was saying that uh, our Education, public educational system has many strengths, and the geography is not one of them. Um, and so I wanted to ask Admiral Perry if uh, he would begin his presentation um, on Europe and maritime issues by giving us a little refresher lesson on the geography of Europe. So let's Thanks. turn it over to you on that. Well, I have to say, um, don't feel down about that, because George Bernard Shaw said that the two things that Englishmen know least about is geography and their own bodies. So um, there we go. It's, it's not just uh, America, perhaps. Okay, um, 
this is Europe, you'll recognize it, but the, the feature that I would really like to point out to you uh, is the fact that it is surrounded on three sides by sea. And that's the Mediterranean, of course, leading up to the Black Sea, uh, the Baltic, and the bit that always gets forgotten, and that's the Barents Sea into the Arctic. And in two world wars, those three seas were critically important to the security of Europe uh, in fighting Germany and sustaining Russia, of course. Uh, and while everything was going on in the Pacific, this very, very small piece of, of territory was fought over on the land, as you know, and in the seas as well. And one of the things that was very surprising during the Cold War is that the Russians didn't identify that those seas were going to be an invasion route while they bulged the Central Front. Well, surprise, surprise, um, we had a double agent called Oleg Gordievsky in the, the London uh, embassy of the, the Soviet Union. And in 1983, apparently, uh, so he said, um, the Russians uh, were going to bulge the Central Front in Europe uh, and then attack uh, Europe uh, across the Baltic and through the Mediterranean. Uh, and the interesting thing about the plan was they'd reserved 30 tactical nuclear weapons for taking out the United Kingdom. Um, on the basis the Americans wouldn't come on that basis and the French would surrender. Uh, and history probably, probably says the latter was probably true. Um, the standing joke in Europe is always, how do you defend Paris? We don't know, nobody's ever tried. Um, uh, but you have to be English to appreciate that. Um, but the critical thing is that, that the Russians actually thought about that. And what the Russians think about the Baltic and the Black Sea today is really important in how we assess Putin's uh, future motives and indeed how the strategic geography uh, of Europe will pan out in, in the future. Um, and you have to think about Europe. Bismarck said it's just a geographical expression. Um, and if you look at the way that the countries in purple, uh, as you know, are members of NATO, um, the ones uh, that are in uh, dark sort of uh, puce um, are nominally neutral. Um, Denmark doesn't sign up to everything the EU does, even though it's a member. Norway, the orange bit at the top there, uh, signs up to what the European Union does, but isn't a member. Um, so you've got this very divided continent. Uh, you've got Turkey, of course, which faces two ways, Janus-like uh, towards Europe and towards Asia. You've got Albania that doesn't really know what it's thinking about. And you've got Greece, which is a total basket case from uh, an economic uh, and social point of view. Uh, and that, of course, has the same alphabet as the Russians do, and therein lies a deep cultural linkage which has been played out recently in the negotiation between the Germans uh, and, and the Greeks. Um, so you've got quite a divided continent in terms of its allegiances. And we mustn't forget the Arctic. Not only is this of critical importance culturally uh, to the Russians, because they believe the far north belongs to them, um, but the issue is that Norway and Sweden and Denmark also have interests in the Arctic that go back centuries in some cases. Uh, but Russia at the moment, uh, as the ice is receding because of uh, climate change at the moment, is making claims that extend way beyond the UN Convention and the law of the sea. And if you want to go across the top of Russia in future to get merchant shipping uh, from uh, the Pacific to the Atlantic, you're currently going courtesy of the Russians, even though their territorial sea extends just to 12 miles. If you go through there, you go through escorted by Russian icebreakers. And if you look at some of the directives coming out of the Kremlin at the moment, they are asserting security rights way beyond their territorial seas into the economic zone of 200 miles. 
and you know, all of you, uh, that the UN Convention Law of the Sea at the moment uh, actually says that innocent passage is allowed right up to the three-mile limit. But the Russians, it seems, uh, short of uh, actually imposing what used to be a cannon range, now seem to interpret their control to be that of a cruise missile out to 200 miles. Um, so more and more now, as the ice comes back, we see the Russians asserting uh, their rights in the north. We've got three NATO countries all saying, hey, you know, we've got rights there. And of course, on the other side, you've got your good selves and the Canadians saying the same thing. So very important indeed. Okay, that's um, just a bit of uh, uh, light relief. This is what the Germans, in opinion polls, think the various countries of Europe provide, uh, as you can see. Um, whiskey in, in, in Ireland, cheap hotels in Spain and in Greece, and vampire land that sits you know, somewhere near Ukraine. Um, okay, if you flip it to what the Brits think, um, you can see um, you've got real difficulties in perception. And the point, what I'm going to try and point out to you is, although it's very convenient for certain political leaders over here to think of uh, Europe as the United States, even with the EU, we're not. We have different cultural, historical, and social assumptions, and they play out all the time. Um, and it's by no means certain that Britain will stay, for example, in the European Union after 2017 when we have a referendum. And if we have that, currently Scotland says it will leave uh, the United Kingdom. Um, so we've got all sorts of things going on at the moment uh, which actually play out to some of these prejudices here. Um, the other thing I think I would like to point out to you is how significantly aging um, Europe is at the moment. There's a vast discrepancy between what's happening in North Africa, the Middle East, the Gulf, and what's happening in Europe. We're aging very rapidly indeed. You'll be gratified to know that America is number eight in the world in terms of actually maintaining uh, its age balance into the 2030s. Um, and indeed, we'll have a vast increase of population through migration and the fact that somehow you discovered how babies are made. Um, and you will have 440 million uh, by uh, 2040. Uh, and that's good. We have a declining population. And the median age, as you can see, uh, is shooting up. Um, and if you look across Europe, you'll see that Ireland, with its rampant Catholicism, and Turkey, uh, okay, with uh, its very high uh, kids per family, uh, are racing ahead. But the rest of the country, countries around, as you can see, apart from a little pocket in Luxembourg, where they've discovered finance and sex, it seems, um, uh, are actually increasing the, their population. I'm Brit. I can say these things. Okay, that's, that, is, that is the Russian approach uh, to uh, how they view Europe. Um, Abramovich, by the way, is a, an oligarch who owns Chelsea Football Club, uh, and that's, most of the population think that's what they do. Um, uh, but as you can see, Turkey turns out to be a tourist colony. Russia thinks Italy is a shopping centre, and Switzerland, of course, has banks. And oddly enough, they don't recognise Ukraine at all. They just think it's got a personality disorder and need to come back into the fold. Um, so there we go. Okay, now this is really important. And Romania is Moldova. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cheap booze as well. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But that's, that's, that is obviously a prejudicial thing, but there we go. Um, now, this is the really important map I want to show you. This is taken from Moscow. Uh, and as you know, um, Russia looks both ways. It looks imperial when it faces east, 
uh, it tries to be European when it faces West in terms of investment and attitudes. But the key issue is that America is not even in sight there. And you've got this cluster of small states on the end of Russia's continent. That's how they view it. And the two arms that come round and clutch Russia's throat in the European area, which where the bulk of its population lives, of course, are the arms of the sea through the Black Sea and the Baltic. And they really do view it as arms reaching round to clutch Russia. And the history shows that when they've been uh, in trouble against Sweden, when they've been in trouble against the Ottoman Empire and things like that, it's the lack of control over the Black Sea and the Baltic that has led them uh, into trouble. Um, and if you look at the Baltic Sea today, um, just look how much river front, uh, sorry, beach frontage uh, the Russians have. They have Kaliningrad between Poland and Lithuania, and they have that tiny bit at the top there, uh, St. Petersburg. And that really worries the Russians, the fact that they don't have this sort of frontage onto the Baltic. Um, and that sea is crisscrossed with gas and energy platforms and pipelines that take Russian gas uh, into uh, Europe. Let's look at the Black Sea. This is before they invaded the east of uh, Ukraine and the Crimea. Look how little coastline they had around Sochi, just to the east there between Georgia uh, and Crimea, the Sea of Azov. That's all they had. Okay, so this has been grating away on the Russian strategic psyche ever since the end of the Cold War. And if you look up here, what we said about the uh, Arctic in terms of oil and gas, in terms of fish and in terms of transit routes, that area also is attracting more and more attention. Now, for Europe, the real worry right now is the Mediterranean, um, not only because of the unstable states that exist to the south, uh, but also because of huge amounts of migration, not just coming in through the states of North Africa, uh, but also across the land through Turkey into Greece uh, and to the Balkan states. Uh, and right now, we're really worried about the security of the Mediterranean uh, in terms of terrorist groups, Barbary pirates coming back again now, who may well get into GoFast, just the same as you have uh, on your southern border around Mexico and things like that, and may well raid the southern coasts of Europe in the near future. Uh, I've been saying to Seth, you know, if I were in Malta now, right now, and Malta, as you know, is uh, just south of Sicily, uh, that's going to be a prime target for the likes of Islamic State and other terrorists um, because it's isolated, uh, it's got huge pickings in terms of profile, uh, lots of tourists and lots of people who will be affected. And you'll be aware we've recently had a lot of deaths in Tunisia as a result of that sort of action. Um, and as you can see on this map, you can see the main asylum routes, mostly, I have to tell you, economic migrants, not asylum seekers, uh, coming into Europe uh, across the Mediterranean, mainly across the land, though, uh, to the east. And we've got real pressure uh, from migration. And it's mixed up with all the issues associated with terrorism uh, and the instabilities associated with what's going on in the Middle East at the moment. And, of course, the Middle East is a lot closer to us than it is across your 3,000-mile moat, uh, the Atlantic. Um, so we're feeling this quite a bit at the moment. The other little neurotic issue that... Um, uh, Britain and the United Kingdom are having to face is the axis of the world strategically right now. If you look at most maps, they run down the Greenwich Meridian. In future, we're going to have to look at maps that look down the international dateline, 180 degrees out, because that is where the economic and power shifts of the world today uh, are leading us, despite 
what's happening to the Chinese economy. And I have to tell you, I'm not a great supporter of thinking that the BRIC countries are going to prevail in economic terms in the medium term. Uh, the United States is incredibly resilient. You have great power of reinventing yourself like Madonna. Uh, and I believe that, that American power uh, will persist uh, well uh, into uh, the future. Um, but you cannot do it on your own. And part of my theme today will say you need to give the Europeans a kick up the backside uh, and get them to look out for themselves. But that strategic view is going to dominate what we're talking about here in terms of sea power, but also in terms of economic and political muscle uh, in the future. And of course, as always, God's country, America, is well placed to benefit from that strategic shift. But for Europe and the United Kingdom, unless they force that map round the compass a bit more and get themselves more center stage, they will not be able to benefit from globalization. They will be into slow economic uh, decline and strategic irrelevance if we're not careful. Okay, just have a quick few words about the use or threat of violence. I think one of the biggest problems we've got in, uh, in the West at the moment is the cost growth of military forces. Uh, there is a preference for multilateral intervention, but we're seeing the increased use of state power in support of economies and strategic ambitions outside uh, of the West. China, uh, as you know, is a fully integrated uh, uh, market Leninist economy, and it uses its state organs, including the military, to promote uh, it, its ad advance and development. But in future, I believe that small amounts of high-quality force will be decisive. And in amongst it, you're going to see a lot of proxy activity and violence. Hezbollah, Hamas do Iran's bidding. We're seeing proxy wars in Syria, Yemen, uh, and Lebanon uh, even now. There's going to be a threat to the global commons, particularly the sea, uh, as states aggressively expand into areas we consider to be uh, part of um, uh, the heritage of mankind and also into space. The big stuff's still around, the nuclear, chemical, biological stuff, and terrorism and criminality will continue to grow. Why? Because states will not want to take each other on directly. And we've seen, really, the, the early signs of this in Ukraine, where little green men and others have been used, uh, really, uh, to do what normal armed forces do. And the other worry is we're seeing a diffusion of technology and weaponry normally associated with states into the hands of uh, non-state actors. Okay, so we're seeing a, an interesting uh, threat spectrum at the moment. Uh, you can see the irregular stuff that we are used to uh, in the world down on the left-hand side, where most of our politicians would like to focus our armed forces. But actually, we've got renewed threats. We've got China, Russia showing very aggressive tendencies and wanting to use uh, their armed forces as instruments of state. We've got regional aspirants like Iran and India. Uh, we've got Islamic State and its successors. I firmly believe Islamic State as a military threat is going to be rubbed out kindly by your F-22s and others uh, within the year. We've got Marxist revivalists, actually, who've realized that if you haven't got anything other than clashing capitalisms, we might as well go back to Marx. And Marx lies thick on the ground in Athens at the moment. The uh, main opposition candidate uh, in the Labour Party uh, in the United Kingdom is a Marxist. Uh, and suddenly they've discovered that Marx says interesting things about capitalism. Uh, he says really awful things about communism. He's not very good at all on communism, but he's actually quite right on capitalism and its weaknesses. Uh, and technology and weapons leakage, as I said to you, is part of the issue. And we're going to be facing a number of hybrid opponents and proxies. What do I mean by hybrids? Uh, irregular, very shadowy organizations that do states' biddings, and they will have access to 
military levels of capability. So what are we going to be doing in future in terms of defence and security? Well, expeditionary fade is apparent here, as in Europe. We don't like going and sitting on other people's countries and getting hit. Uh, we're going for collective solutions, but there will be increased contingency commitments based on containment. Um, if you think we're going to go into the Middle East anytime soon in the way we did, uh, then you need to read the strategic logic that we shouldn't. We're going to have to contain what effectively is a rerun of Europe's 30 years war uh, in the Middle East in future. Um, what I believe will be the real watchword will be high impact, low footprint missions. We don't want to be on the ground where we can be taken out by a large range of cheap missile and other systems. We want to be in there, out, having actually got our way. And it'll be based on those five uh, things there. We need to ensure access to natural resources. We can't survive without it. We've got to bolster the international system, counter the big stuff, adapt to a changing planet. If you don't believe the planet is changing with its climate, then you really do need to study the science. If you think humans are causing it, keep an open mind, because I don't believe it is. Um, we're being conned, I'm afraid. Um, and you'll see the increasing use of private service companies as the cost, unit cost, of human beings in the armed forces goes up like any other service industry today. Humans are expensive. Technology is getting cheaper. And certainly for Europe, we're going to have to offset the demographic and aging imbalance quite seriously. Defence expenditure in Europe, as you can see, is on the decline. Uh, Putin's uh, actually helped us a bit because uh, he's demonstrated an existential threat. Uh, and without boring you with the detail, okay, you can see that NATO, God bless them, actually spends quite a lot uh, outside of the US um, relative to the other countries. We're still spending quite a lot on our defense. Together with the United States, we're sending nearly $1 trillion a year on defense in NATO. The trouble is we're not getting a lot of bangs for our buck at the moment. Um, give you an example. If you look at an Aegis cruiser or, or, or a, an Arleigh Burke shooting down a Chinese service, service missile, it costs nearly eight times the amount to actually shoot it down than the missile itself costs. That cost ratio is not supportable into the future. And innovation in terms of directed energy, rail guns, all these things will be critical in bringing down that cost ratio. Um, and certainly from a country that has been on a declining defense budget for the best part of 100 years now, um, you know, we've got some good and bad things to say to the United States about when you cut your budget. Okay, just finally now, NATO. In 2010, we went for collective defense, um, cooperative security and crisis management. Those cost ratios are now starting to bear. There's another issue as well, apart from deterring uh, and defeating threats, we've got to resist coercion. We have signally failed to resist coercion in relation to Ukraine. Europe dare not go to war. And one of the things that came out of the Munich conference in 1938 was Hitler's statement that he knew he was going to win at Munich when he knew that Chamberlain, Prime Minister of the UK, and Deladier, Prime Minister of France, didn't want to go to war. And the real credibility issue we have uh, in the West at the moment is that nobody believes that we'll go to war over anything. Hitler's favorite expression when his general said, look, it's very risky uh, going back into the Rhineland was, who's going to die for Strasbourg? Who's going to die for Prague? Who will die for Danzig? Well, who's going to die for islands in the South China Sea? Who's going to die for Lithuania? Is a question we need to ask ourselves. What we have to do is defend NATO and its rules-based rules interests. 
both around Europe, uh, our home countries, and the wider world. And we're going to have to resolve this, this issue between does the United States wish to be able to support Europe or does it want to pivot uh, to the Asia-Pacific? And the way I see it as a European is in the past, America used to put together a posse, a coalition. And we used to fight uh, existential uh, and our discretionary battles that way. In future, I think America will say to various regions, you've got to look after your own security interests. And if necessary, if you get in way over your heads, we'll send the cavalry. But that philosophy depends on the cavalry coming. If there's any doubt that America will not come, then countries in the Asia Pacific will make an accommodation with China. European countries will make an accommodation uh, with Russia. And that will lead to all sorts of geostrategic consequences. And I've got some futures if we want to talk about it, but I think for now, uh, that's probably enough to get the conversation going. Well, thank you very much, Chris, for that uplifting assessment. Um, on the maritime question, uh, specifically, what is, how does Europe look at the problems that you hinted at um, with your description of Europe as a peninsula? Well, the, it's very interesting. If you, if you look at, um, let's look at the um, reign of Charles I of England. Um, there was a thing called ship money. It was a tax that was levied. And uh, essentially, uh, the English Civil War was brought about partly because the inland counties of England resisted ship money on the basis it was an arbitrary tax. That was the first thing. You'll, you'll recognize the, the theme over here. Um, and secondly, um, they said, well, it should be the coastal countries that are actually dealing with this. They're the ones that are exposed to the threat and all this sort of thing. Um, and the logic applies in Europe today. Um, Northern Europeans tend to think instinctively that if there's a problem in the Mediterranean, that's the problem of Italy and Greece and Spain and France. Um, if there's one in the Baltic, then that's the Nordic state. So you can see past historical attitudes actually uh, prevailing here. Um, Euro the European Union itself is incapable of producing strategic direction. Um, it's not set up to be that. It's an economic union that has political pretensions. And I stress the word pretensions. The fact that Greece has been bailed out has been a political move to keep Greece afloat in the European Union. Uh, if Greece were to leave the European Union, in fact, be ejected, then there'll probably be a run on other countries as well. And the actual fact of Greece leaving uh, would actually probably spur Britain on to leave in 2017. There'll be almost a momentum there. Um, so the European Union, its main role is trying to push forward this political agenda headed by Germany and France, who are like two boxers, of course. If they spring apart, they're going to thump each other. Um, so they, they don't want that. Of course they don't. Um, and it's also driven by the fact uh, that all the energy that is taken up in running the European Union leaves precious little energy or indeed consensus for actually sorting out what is a regional problem both to the north uh, and to the south. Now, the, the other issue that one has to uh, remember is that Europe has a dependency culture on the United States in strategic and defense terms. And we've been so long dependent on the United States uh, that we're actually incapable of standing on our own two feet. 
and you've got four Ollie Burks in Rota at the moment. Uh, you've got all sorts of units around uh, Europe. Um, European defense as such is not sustainable in the current uh, uh, strategic environment. And that implies at sea as well as over land and in the air as well. And that dependency culture, I'm afraid, has led to a weakness. A weakness is that we have token forces in some of our countries that are not capable of going to war tomorrow. And armed forces that are not capable of going to war are not armed forces in the true sense. So if we're resisting coercion at sea, if we are going to face down the prospect this year of Russian and Chinese combined maneuvers in the Mediterranean, if we're going to deal with marking and dealing with uh, the sort of things that are going to come off the Russian northern fleet, if we're going to deal with the sort of exercises that we see in the Baltic, which are overtly designed to counter uh, any NATO attempt to reinforce or take back the Baltic states, uh, then we're going to have to have a serious uplift, both in attitude and capabilities, if we're not going to run to the United States every time. You get the sense that the Russians take NATO's moves in the Baltic seriously? Well, if you look at the last three exercises in the Baltic, which have been really exercised from a standing start, uh, you'll see that there's been a mixture of both nuclear and conventional capabilities deployed, mostly from Kaliningrad, um, which is uh, being seen more and more now as a, a real strategic hub for the Russians in the Baltic. And they, the way they pan out is specifically designed to resist NATO interference in the Baltic states. Now, some of that may be posturing because they want to divert attention away from what's going on in Ukraine. But you've seen the same pattern occurring down in the Black Sea as well. And remember the neuroses associated with the Black and the Baltic Seas. These are areas that the Russians wish to at least uh, dominate if they, they don't control. But the level of investment in combined arms exercises uh, has been quite intense in, in recent years. Um, they've been putting pressure on the Swedes and the Finns. Uh, and Sweden has said if, if there's a, a Russian uh, approach to the Baltic states, Sweden, a neutral country for hundreds of years, said we would have to have a defense interest there. And of course, the Swedes have been depth charging all sorts of underwater issues, um, whether they're submarines or things trying to pull up cables, we don't know. Um, but certainly there is nervousness in, in the Scandinavian countries about Russia's approach to the Baltic. And, and you saw with, with Denmark, Denmark said, look, we're probably going to put our, um, our frigates into an anti-ballistic missile posture. The Russians came back and said, well, you can expect to get nuked then. Um, straight away. Um, so nuclear-tipped torpedoes, nuclear-tipped missiles, but hey, how did we raise the stakes? And somebody needs to say to Putin, this is not how we play poker. Um, but we're not helping because we're not using Putin's vocabulary at all. Um, he, he invades uh, Crimea, and yet NATO's alert state stayed absolutely static. So our signaling mechanisms at the moment are, are screwed, um, and we need to do something about that. How do, you, how do you reconcile uh, Europe's general approval for the deal with Iran with the lifting of sanctions that prevents Iran from buying parts for ballistic missiles five years from now? Well, um, I think the Iran deal is the art of the possible rather than the desirable. Um, and um, certainly, Iran was always going to come out of the closet sometime this decade. 
um, there's tremendous demographic and aspirational pressure within Iran. The, I think there's a complication as much as that the real power lies in Iran, not with the mullahs, the ayatollahs, as we, we have thought in the past, but lies with the security apparatus, uh, who not only control, obviously, the armed forces, the Republican Guard, but also control 40% of the economic uh, output of um, Iran as well, including the oil and gas. And we shouldn't underestimate the very close connection between Iran and China. And that exists not just at an institutional and political level, but also at a personal level. You see members of the armed forces very close to their opposite numbers in China. Uh, and uh, as Iran comes out into the world, I think you'll see that Chinese access operating very strongly uh, indeed. And China, of course, has helped Iran evade sanctions uh, over the time. Uh, and so I think with Russia and China both trying to keep Iran, if you like, as a a client state, they've been keen to uh, suppress its nuclear ambitions. The United States and Israel, of course, are keen to see that it doesn't develop uh, its nuclear capabilities. The European Union, I'm afraid, has tagged along on this. Mm -hmm. um, it's followed American leadership to a large extent. I would say, though, that in the past, European countries, we won't name them, have misbehaved in relation to sanctions. Uh, I'm sure they will misbehave uh, in future in selling some of these parts if they can get away with it. Uh, and I think in the general rush to welcome Iran into the world economic community, we've got to be really careful uh, that we understand how we're going to develop strategically with them and what threat they pose, not just in terms of a regional uh, superpower, but also in terms of their influence around the world. Um, I have to say the good news for America is that I think that the great Satan tag is probably going to be shifted from you to Saudi Arabia very much in the near future, uh, because I think there is a regional struggle, uh, what I call Islam's 30 years war, that has to occur uh, to resolve this issue between Sunni and Shia. That's not how it sounds, Sunni and Shia. Um, and you have to be in my generation to understand that one. Um, and also between the regional aspirants, which are Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the one that everybody forgets, Turkey, which also has an interest here. So it's not just a a, a duopoly, it's a, a triopoly as well, uh, in terms of who gets the most influence in that area. But first of all, this Sunni-Shia issue has got to find itself a Treaty of Westphalia at some stage, because otherwise mm -hmm. it's just going to roll on into the future. And in a disturbed, unstable environment like that, uh, people will look to take advantage economically and strategically. There's no question about that. And little things like treaties aren't going to get in the way of that sort of thing, in my experience. Let me ask one other question and then turn it over to the floor here. Uh, what are the opportunities for separating the Iranians from the Chinese? I think that the, uh, the strategic um, axis between China and Iran right now is going to determine how the future of the Gulf goes because I think in future you'll see that uh, China will almost certainly with its new silk roads over land and by sea where it's putting in a huge amount of investment. Uh, I mean, if you look at the investment in, in China's silk roads, um, it's nearly four times the amount of the Marshall Plan after World War II in terms of economic development. And that is significant. But what I do see emerging is a particular power access that takes China, Iran, Iraq, and the other Shia countries, which include, by the way, Syria and parts of Lebanon, which take it right through to the Mediterranean. 
uh, and that part of um, China's merc mercantilist uh, philosophy, I think, will persist. Um, where does that leave the southern Gulf states? In a very interesting position, because if China's going to get the bulk of its oil in future from a Shia-dominated Iraq, it's going to get the bulk of its gas from a Shia-dominated uh, Iran, um, then it's going to be a very interesting power play in an era of cheap oil and cheap gas, which it will be. There's no question about that. Um, but I think uh, China and Iran together are going to be working their agenda, which they've built up over the last few years. Um, and I think the United States and Europe is going to have to decide how it's going to sit alongside China in the Gulf in future, because I think China will be all over the Gulf region uh, within the next 10 years. Um, and of course, nature and geopolitics abhors a vacuum. If we show any signs of, of reducing our commitment to the southern Gulf states, then I'm sure that China will move in very rapidly. Um, when I go to um, the Gulf nowadays, most of the construction um, is done by southern Asians, but more and more it's being taken over by Chinese firms. Um, and we have to acknowledge that, uh, that they're being very active in that, era, in that area. Um, and it is capitalism on the march. We recognize this. America's had this experience in the past. Do we counter it? Do we cooperate with it? Do we confront it? Okay, that's for our politicians to decide. All I know is uh, that Russia and China and Iran will seek to use their instruments of state power to further their economic and regional aspirations. And part of that is the military instrument of power as well. Um, and we're seeing more and more Chinese warships in the Indian Ocean, piracy and other things. They're in the Mediterranean. Mediterranean we're yeah. seeing uh, their icebreakers in the Arctic. Uh, and you know, they have an interest. They say they have an interest. I mean, one of the worrying things is that both Russia and China say that an oil and gas rig, for example, sitting anywhere in the world is Russian or Chinese sovereign territory, which is a significant break with the UN Convention Law of the Sea but also not in accordance with Western practice. Um, so if you're a Chinese rig sitting, for example, 180 miles off Malaysia, that's sovereign territory on which we can base surveillance, we can base missiles, we can do all sorts of things. But don't dare come and clear us out, even if you're Malaysian. Um, so they're turning the rules. I mean, what the Chinese are doing now, almost all parts of the world, I call the UN Convention Law of the Sea with Chinese characteristics. In other words, if it doesn't suit us, we don't do it. Um, and Seth knows I'm talking in the Pentagon tomorrow about how best we can counter this sort of thing uh, in future. Sorry, an endless diversion there, but yeah. So uh, thank you, Chris. Let, let me, um, let's turn the questions over to uh, you. And um, if you would be, uh, if you'd just, identify yourself and um, if you have one organizational connection floor is open uh, Chair Jacobson, and there's a there's a mic coming right there oh, perfect. thank you uh, you were discussing that the shift of the meridian and the UK being on the sideline and uh, strategic relevance. How do you see the Royal Navy's carrier program coming online? How do you see that being implemented uh, into the uh, not only UK's global perspective, but everyone's, specifically the West? Thank you. 
Yeah, we're very happy to get our carriers. Um, but I have to tell you, the reason uh, that we have our carriers is because of British shipbuilding, not because of any strategic consideration by our politicians. Um, it maintains our sovereign capability to build ships of that size. They're actually the largest warships the United Kingdom's ever built, by the way, the, the 64,000 tons. Now, um, my, my little worry with the carriers is they sit uneasily uh, between uh, your large deck amphibs and your very large strike carriers. Uh, and so I'm a bit concerned with the F-35B, where they're going to sit. Now, Seth knows that our, my view is that large carriers are for bullying people in peacetime. They're not really for going in harm's way uh, a la Pacific War. You know, um, it would be very unfortunate, I think, if any of your large carriers actually saw an opponent in any future conflict. Um, and I think that the street fighting will be done by the amphib decks with F-35Bs in future. Uh, with long-range strike being obviously launched from your carriers well out of harm's way. That's my belief. I know uh, the carrier people believe that they're going to be right up threat doing that, but you look at the, the scale of asset that a, a modern supercarrier represents. Okay, we're going to have to think of smart ways of employing and concealing them in an area of increased visibility and vulnerability. Uh, if you look at some of the best commercial software and imagery on the Internet right now, you can find most of your carriers within about a day. Um, now, that level of capability okay, was, was unheard of even 10 years ago. So I can pay $5, and I can find out where the Carl Vinson is. Well, we know where it is, but Theodore Roosevelt, which is at sea. Okay, we can find out. So, so we have to adapt to that, because if, if ballistic missiles, which you know the Chinese and the Russians are developing, don't get it, uh, then some of the submarine capabilities will at some stage. And I think we've got to try and forget the notion that somehow the Imperial Japanese fleet is still out there waiting to be destroyed by an American carrier battle group. How we employ those supercarriers in future is going to be critical to how power is deployed in the Pacific and around Europe and the Atlantic in future. But we've got to think about it. But in terms of harm's way, I think your small amphibs are going to be absolutely critical. My expression, which I always use, is if a ship is losable, it's usable. But just, uh, let's just think about an Arleigh Burke on the screen protecting a carrier. Am I going to be happy with sinking an Arleigh Burke? Yes, I am. I'm going to go home doing loop-de-loops if I can deal with that. So the whole principle of how we protect our assets at sea is quite important. Now, getting back to the Queen Elizabeth class, um, it's designed essentially to do peacetime missions. Um, how it actually dovetails into a wartime environment, I'm not sure, um, because they are vital national assets. In informational and influence terms, if we lost one, it would be very difficult. There's no question. Um, but the fact of life is, if you wish to project power in the modern world, you have to have multi-capable, multi-task platforms. And the carrier right now is the best thing we've got, because it gives you aviation, uh, it gives you all sorts of power projection capabilities as well. The problem for the Royal Navy is in order to man and run those ships, we're hollowing out the rest of the Royal Navy. Uh, we've reduced the number of our escorts. Uh, quite a lot of our sustainability has gone by the by. Um, and even in terms of manning, we're going to have to put ships into uh, extended readiness, I suspect, in order to get uh, even the first one, let alone the second one, going. Uh, I, I foresee that those ships will be used as motherships in future rather than as basic carriers, 
part of their role will be strike, um, obviously, but I think you'll find they'll do all sorts of joint uh, uh, roles as well. And that includes amphibious um, and holding offshore, if you like, as floating chunks of sovereignty. I mean, you're there in, in, in grand scale. You've got your offshore bases that you're building, uh, the, these very good adapted merchant ships. Uh, you've also got the carriers, the Vincent itself, and also the Abraham Lincoln demonstrated how you can be the only thing that comes from the first world off a, a disaster zone in future. Uh, I mean, I know NGOs who said the only place they could get a shower in, in Indonesia when Bandar Aceh was hit was, of course, in the Abraham Lincoln. Uh, fantastic capability. And let me tell you, you know, from an outsider's point of view, Abraham Lincoln appearing off Indonesia has had a strategic effect, not just local on the ground, with regard to Indonesia, which was not sure about America, I have to tell you beforehand. But you go to Indonesia now, the Abraham Lincoln has just turned around the attitude of Indonesians to American power. Uh, and so we've got to look for these hidden benefits when we put these major capital assets into places. Um, my big question in response to your question is, will it go in harm's way? Well, I think with the F-35s, it's going to be a street fighter like your, your large deck amphibs. It'll be up front, it'll be losable, and it'll be usable in an alliance environment. Because if it isn't losable, it's not usable and does not justify the level of investment that we're putting into it. The real risk, though, is we become a two-carrier and very little else navy. And that's not good enough, actually. Thank you very much. Uh, Michael Kurzig, who uh, worked in the Department of Agriculture. I found your exposition here very, very interesting. And since you mentioned it about population growth and demographics, I see an invasion in Europe of Islam uh, when you mentioned uh, low population growth, I don't how you square that with a very high population growth for people who are of Islamic faith, apparently, and who are invading now, apparently, from Syria, from Libya, from everywhere. And the bottom line for me is, where are the jobs? And what's going to happen over there, which I think is critical. There are no jobs in the Middle East, and there are not too many jobs in Europe. What are you going to do with all those people? Uh, and that's, that's a, a huge problem. The second one, I, I just thought for a minute, what do you think the chances are of a nuclear accident? I mean, we talked about all nuclear tip this and that and the proliferation of nuclear. That could happen, maybe. And what is, what is your thinking? What is the strategic thinking there? Thank you. That's kind of you. I mean, some of that's way above my pay grade, but I'll, I'll attempt to uh, answer it. Um, very interesting, your first point. Uh, if I can just flick through some slides here, um, which we're going to explain. Oh, by, by, by the way, who do you think that is in the circle with some very dubious company? That is um, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, the, the husband of the Queen. And the reason I, I was going to show this to you is because this is 1938. Uh, this picture did, had not surfaced until six months ago. And it came out of the archives that the Russians took from Berlin in the 1945. And the reason that it's actually on the internet and in the public space right now is because the Russian information approach is those people in Kiev, they're fascists. Okay, we're fighting fascism in Kiev at the moment, in Ukraine. Um, and anybody who supports Kiev is also a fascist. And here's the proof. The Queen of England's husband attending a Nazi 
funeral in 1938. It's actually the funeral of his aunt, Cecilia, um, who happened to die in Berlin at the time. Um, but there we go. That's the level of propaganda information that we are on the end of and which we are naive in resisting at the moment. Um, so uh, I thought I'd show you that. Um, don't worry about any of these. I just want to show you the answer your question. Um, lots of good pictures here. Sorry. I can go back to them. Okay. The answer to your question is that there are four types of uh, future that I see for Europe. The first is what I call a Roman future, and it really uh, gives you the issue. The reason I call it a Roman future is the fact that if you look at Europe and the problem that you suggest in terms of how the Romans dealt with it, they said there is a Mediterranean community, <coughs> both economic and social, which if you ally it politically, gives you a good model for actually developing into the future. And the idea is you stabilize people in their home countries and you have an economic interdependence, as you can see, that exists around the Mediterranean. So that's the first opportunity that Europe's got. It can integrate the economies and you know, there are assets in Libya, uh, Algeria. You can cover the Sahara with solar panels and supply all Europe's energy needs for the next 100 years. So there's all sorts of opportunities that you can do by integrating what I call a, a Roman uh, future. Uh, and you obviously extend that up into Germania. And interestingly enough, the Romans faced exactly the same problem in the 5th century with a large number of very hairy, very aggressive people with no jobs who wanted to benefit from what was going on inside the Roman Empire. And when it wasn't made available to them, they said, you know what? We're Goths, we're Vandals, we'll invade. So there are some real choices to be made here about uh, what goes on. And your point about employment is well made, but it's not just an issue of what's coming uh, at us from that part of the world. Uh, the whole future of employment is changing anyway, and the younger generation will realize this, that we have got to adjust expectations about work, leisure, and development in our lives. Uh, this idea that we're going to work all the way through for 40 years uh, is going to be a thing of the past. So we have to have productive employment for people, and we have to have bare minimum living wages for people in future. If we don't, uh, then we're going to find the problems that you, you address uh, are going to be upon us. Okay. There's also another future for Europe, while I'm at it, and that is a Eurasian future, where it says, look, we recognize that Russia and China are cooperating strategically and economically, and we want to be part of that. You know, the governance issues will sort out. America's drifted over the horizon, uh, you know, and so therefore, while they're looking at the Pacific, we're going to look out for our own interests, both in terms of energy uh, and trade and things like that, and we'll sit on the end of that Makinda uh, Eurasian continent and benefit from that. And certainly with the Silk Roads, uh, you can see that China uh, investing in that actually has a real uh, uh, prospect of success if you go down that route. Okay, now the one I like is a maritime future. And that says you've got Eurasia, you've got Russia and China together cooperating, and we know they are. It's like the um, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact at the moment between Putin and Xi Jinping. At the okay. moment. Um, did I get that right? At the moment. At the moment, yeah. Not forever. And of course they fell out anyway. Um, but... Let's just look at what's starting to coalesce around this now, and that's a maritime future. Canada, United States, bits of Europe, including the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Japan. And the good news is, Halford Mackinder, the great geopolitician and geostrategist, said the maritime powers always win because they control the linkages uh, between the various markets, sources of raw materials, uh, and uh, 
factories if you stay strong at sea. And as Seth knows in my book, Superhighway, my contention is uh, that the sea is the physical equivalent of the World Wide Web. You lose control of that, you lose control essentially of your access to globalization, and you lose this particular issue. Uh, but if you get all the instruments of state power uh, operating, you get that maritime uh, union together, you can actually contest uh, the uh, rule of the world uh, with Eurasia. And it all depends, of course, on us remaining strong in relation to that. And of course, Europe could have a fragmented future where we say we look after our own interests, the Palmerstonian rules apply, countries don't have eternal friends or enemies, we just have interests, and each country pursues its own interests. And that fragmentation could occur in terms, as you see, of countries, uh, but also we've got vast numbers, as you see, of separatist movements in Europe. You can actually have those countries breaking up, and we simply become little taifas, those little states that existed on the borderline between Islam and Christianity uh, in Spain uh, in uh, the medieval period. And it, don't underestimate the powers of localism uh, in, uh, in Europe at the moment, and, and this, this typifies it. And um, while I'm on your question, I think the 2016 election is really important. And uh, it's as important as uh, this particular choice that was made in ancient Athens. Um, now, the Athenians had found a huge amount of silver at Larium in the 5th century. And I always liken this silver to finding unconventional oil and gas on the continent of America. And there was a discussion in Athens about what they should do with the money. And Themistocles, whose name appears on that pot, as you can see, um, and on that ostrach, um, said, look, we need to build 200 triremes. And Cleisthenes, his opponent, said, no, no, we've got to give money out to the people because they're a bit restive. We've got to give them welfare payments and all that sort of thing. So they put it to the vote. And in ancient Athens, um, you wrote the name of the person you disagreed with on an oysterach, and we get the word ostracism from it in modern English. Okay, Themistocles won the vote, and instead of getting 200 triremes, they got 300. And that's the fleet that defeated the Persians when they invaded a few years later at Salamis. And of course, everything um, from democracy and freedom in, in Europe and the current Greek crisis actually flows uh, from that. Um, and I believe you're gonna get to a Themistocles moment next year in the United States, where you choose whether you wish to remain a strategically dominant partner or you wish to turn inwards and say, we need to deal with these other things. So do remember, please, Themistocles. Sorry, I don't mean to be puffing my own book. Your second bit, the nuclear issue. Are we going to have a nuclear accident? Well, we've had nuclear accidents, both in nuclear submarines. Um, we've had a number of very, very close issues. Um, I think the, the biggest uh, potential uh, for an accident is the tactical release of a weapon that has a nuclear warhead. Now, interestingly enough, during the Cuban mi Missile Crisis, the Russians gave authority to release nuclear weapons to their tactical commanders. And for a 48-hour period, the commanders on the ground were able to decide whether they were going to uh, release nuclear weapons. Now, not a lot of people know that, as Michael Caine used to say. 
Uh, and that is a level of control way below what we would expect today. Um, I don't think it is inconceivable. Let me tell you, in 1990, I was asked to do a paper on what I thought the world would be like in 2005 in our Ministry of Defense. And out of um, the 18 assessments, um, 16 have come to pass, I'm glad to say, which is why I'm in business today. Um, two uh, hadn't come to pass in 2005. One of those was the major European country we were destabilized by immigration, and we thought Italy at the time. Um, and the second one was that a nuclear weapon would be used either by accident or in anger. And the closest I think we came was India-Pakistan in 1999. Uh, I think theoretically it's not inconceivable uh, the way the rhetoric is going at the moment that the tactical use of a nuclear weapon is going to be in the lexicon of various doctrines and concepts in some countries in the future. Um, and let's not forget that there are five countries in the world today that actually say that nuclear weapons are war-fighting weapons, not deterrent weapons. And that obviously means that theoretically uh, what you're saying is a possibility. So from, uh, conversely, you know, I've, I've lived through a generation where nuclear weapons has kept the strategic peace. And we've ended up in a series of discretionary wars where we can choose whether we want to get involved or not. I do think we're entering an era now where Trotsky, it wasn't Trotsky who said it, but he, it's rather like Ernie King was, was sort of, uh, was asked whether he, he'd, said, he'd said the issue about when going gets tough, you know, they send for the sons of bitches. And he said, well, you know, uh, I didn't say it, but I wish I had, and I would have said it if it occurred to me. Well, it's the same um, with Trotsky. Trotsky is reputed, but didn't say, you know, you might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. We're getting into an era where that is the case, I think, again. And nuclear weapons will play a part in deterring major superpower and regional power conflicts. But I think there are some people crazy enough to think they could win a war with nuclear weapons. That's the worry I have. All right, we have time for one more question. Hi, Yola Johnson. Admiral, thank you for your thoughtful remarks. Uh, you had mentioned that one of the main reasons why um, countries in the Baltics and the southern European area are unable to effectively address maritime challenges is because of their lack of capabilities. Assuming this was a perfect world, money was not an issue, no budgetary limitations, what kind of capabilities do our allies in the Baltic and Southern Europe need to address those challenges that they're facing? Thanks, that's a good question, yeah. Um, I think the first thing that people have to be able to do is defend their territorial seas and their economic zones. Uh, once, once people have the confidence and the capacity to do that, they won't feel aggressive in relation to some of their neighbors. They won't feel threatened. Um, but the fact of life is right now, you need the political will as well as the capability to be able to uh, deploy some of these uh, things that we're talking about. Um, and if you ask a lot of professionals at the moment, they're not confident about standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with some of the capabilities they might have to face. Uh, those of you who are professionals, just think about some of the Russian surface-to-surface -surface missiles that are around at the moment. Uh, there aren't many European countries that could actually deal with those, uh, except in coalition with the United States and perhaps the United Kingdom. We're quite confident about our Type 45s, for example, which we think are as good as the Arleigh Burks uh, in terms of anti-air warfare. 
Uh, but we've grossly neglected anti-submarine warfare and mine warfare for the last 20 years, as if it wasn't there. Um, and we've got a range of threats uh, and risks uh, in relation to potential opponents that we frankly can't cope with. Uh, and unless we uh, are confident in our ability to be able to confront these threats, we won't be able to deter or to defeat them, self-evidently. But my third point is we can't resist coercion either. Now, I don't know how the political spectrum will look in, say, two or three years' time. Um, but the sort of capabilities that we need to be able to uh, deploy around Europe are the ones that take advantage of that strategic geography. Now, it's a, it, Europe's a densely populated um, continent. And I was always very worried during the Cold War how you would fight across the continent of Europe the Russians ever attacked. Uh, and you know, the, the French had a very easy answer to this. They, they had these short-range ta uh, tactical um, nuclear weapons, which the Germans always said they can only impact in one place. It's us. <laughs> and didn't like these things on the Plateau d'Albion. So fighting across the continent of Europe is not a great way of doing things. We have the technology now to be able to project power and to apply high-impact, low-footprint um, capability in and around the continent of Europe such that it can penetrate every part of the land area. Now, we should be concentrating on dealing with that aspect so we can defend our continent uh, from the flanks. We can use the Black Sea and the, uh, the Baltic, obviously, as a forward projection area, uh, but we have to be confident in our ability to actually deploy there, uh, and that means you have to be able to survive. Now, part of the solution, of course, is unmanned. We can use a lot of unmanned systems, but how many unmanned systems do you have to lose before it really gets serious? So let's just say with the, let's take it over in the Pacific, these islands that are being uh, artificially built by the Chinese. So let's say we put a, a global hawk within a mile of one of those islands, which we're entitled to do so under international law. Let's just say it gets shot down by the Chinese. Is that a big deal? Politically, it isn't because nobody gets killed. But how many global hawks do you have to lose, or tritons in its maritime role, do you have to lose before it becomes serious? Before you're going to have to put a Poseidon in there with 16 guys and women in it? Then it gets serious. So there's a real complication around uh, how you use unmanned in future, because you're not signaling politically with an unmanned vehicle, unless it does something destructive. Um, so there are lots of complications about how we play this. The most important thing, though, the most important capability is teaching our politicians how to threaten and use force again. They don't get it. They really don't. And poor old Putin doesn't understand the vocabulary that's coming from the West at the moment because he's doing the traditional uh, threatening and using of hard power, and we're not responding in kind. So he's confused. Um, I always tell the story of um, two guinea pigs. You have guinea pigs over here, don't you? Pets, yeah? Two guinea pigs my pets had. Uh, and they were pretty autistic. They, they didn't remember one thing from one day to the other. And we had a fox in the garden. And every time the fox pitched up, uh, these two guinea pigs would run up to the edge of the cage and say, hi, Mr. Fox, nice to see you. And the fox just didn't get it because it was going, this is too easy. I don't understand why these guys are offering themselves up. And in the end, he went away. Now, I get the impression that we've adopted a guinea pig mentality in the West, that uh, in doing that, we're confusing the opposition. We're not. Hard power is well understood by our potential strategic opponents. They're using it. They will push, uh, and they will also uh, prevail if we don't actually confront them at some stage. Uh, we have to hold them to international agreements. 
that's part of capability that we have that. I mean, international agreements and treaties are war by any other means. Disarmament conferences are the same. They are war by any other means. Uh, and so we've got to get a good capability between our political will and uh, our capabilities. And then I think you'll see more clarity in terms of what we need at sea to be able to defend not only our countries, but also our offshore zones and the international seaways as well. Uh, and I think my final point on that is let's not just think in terms of these regions and localities here. It's equally important for the Royal Navy or European navies to be in the Pacific standing shoulder to shoulder with the United States saying you shall not shut off the South and East China Sea such that you go courtesy of the Chinese Communist Party every time you go past Singapore. Because the Americans have to go toe to toe with the Chinese, it looks very much like a rerun of World War II against the Japs. And it can't be that way. It has to be the world community saying it's the global commons and everybody's involved. Well, to conclude, first of all, I'd like to thank you, Chris, for excellent presentation and thank all of you again for uh, attending today and asking excellent questions. Um, I'm not so sure that uh, Western leaders have forgot how to use political will. Um, I, I do think you're right about the uh, decision to be made by the American electorate next year. Um, but I think the question is not so much whether country remembers how to use political will, but whether it, to go back to something else that you said, believes that there is anything worth sacrificing for. I mean, if that issue is resolved in the negative, then all the political will in the world is... Um, <clears throat> and on that happy note, uh, thank you again. See you next time.